So, how many of you have heard me quote Mick Jagger before? Elaney has, of course. Chinelo has, right? I, always, I only quote him, well, I quote him infrequently. I don't often quote Mick Jagger. Um, but when I do quote him, it's always the same quote. You know what it is, Elaney? Elaney knows what it is. What is it, Elaney? I can't get no satisfaction. I mean, he, he, yeah, you know, penetrating brevity, flawless clarity, and it's a beat you can dance to, right? You guys know who Mick Jagger is. I, I apologize because he's my generation. The Stones are 70 years old and they still tour. I mean, it's an astonishing thing. Um, but he's my generation. I was telling someone last night that I can remember being at the uh, swimming pool back in the 60s, the late 60s, listening to Mick Jagger sing that song. So, yeah, I don't quote him often, but, but he says he can't get no satisfaction. Now, it's a curious thing, isn't it? Um, at least for my generation, he would have to be a poster boy for hedonism. You guys know what hedonism is. We've used this term before. What is hedonism? It's the earnest pursuit of what? Pleasure. Fleshly, worldly pleasure. And if, the, if there's ever been a poster boy for hedonism, no doubt Mick Jagger would be in contention. Um, but he says, I can't get no satisfaction. And then he says, but I try, and I try, and I try, and I try. But I can't get no satisfaction. Now, if you were converted in adulthood, you really understand that. You really understand that. Um, I don't often quote Oscar Wilde either. Oscar Wilde was a, was a 19th century playwright and libertine. And he said something quite remarkable. I've never forgotten it. I've always loved it. Um, he said there are two tragedies in life. Anybody know what they are? The first tragedy is not getting what you want. The second tragedy, right, Electra? The second tragedy is getting it. Now, why would a man say something like that? What would prompt a man to say something like that? That the second tragedy is actually getting what you thought you wanted. Huh? Exactly. He can't get any satisfaction either. He's just saying it in a different way, right? You know, it is a profound tragedy to spend your whole life chasing something, desiring something, working for something, and then you find out there's no true satisfaction or fulfillment in it. And if you know Oscar Wilde's life, it was a, a very tragic one indeed. I share this with you often. Um, Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put eternity in the heart of man. God made us for Himself. This is why Mick and Oscar can't find any satisfaction. Because they're looking in all the wrong places. Amen? They're looking in the world. and You, you can't find it. Your heart, God designed you for Him. And if you, you know, give yourself to the pursuit of anything less than Him... If he's, let me say it this way, if he's not your preeminent pursuit, you're setting yourself up for dissatisfaction, profound dissatisfaction, uh, perpetual dissatisfaction. It's just the way it is with the human heart. 
We were made for God. And everything else is too small. It's not to say that we don't enjoy the blessings of God. Certainly we do. But if we set our hearts preeminently on any of the blessings of God, we will encounter dissatisfaction. It doesn't matter if you, if you set your heart on human love or marriage or kids or success or career or accomplishment or fame or ministry. If it's before God you will not find any satisfaction. You will not find it in anything this world has to offer. If you could pour the whole cosmos into the heart of man, it wouldn't move the needle. You and I were made for God. God says to rebellious man in Isaiah 55.2, Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not Satisfy? I think that's an excellent question. In Jeremiah 2.13, God says, Why do you forsake Me, the fountain of living waters, and drink from broken cisterns that can hold no water? Pretty good questions, I think, for mankind to consider. And this has sort of been my byline for this short series. God is saying to man, this is the open invitation to mankind, come, See how awesome I am? Come and see who you're supposed to be. This is the invitation of the Bible. Come and discover who you're supposed to be. And until you come to Christ, until you find yourself in Christ, you have no clue who you're supposed to be. You have no idea who you were designed to be and what you were designed to do. You have no clue. Until you are in Christ. Until you are in Him. God says, I will satisfy My people forever. I will satisfy My people forever. For a billion eternities, I will satisfy My people. Beloved, if you don't ponder on these things, um, it's at your loss and at your peril. God says, I will satisfy My people forever. Forever. It's an amazing thought. So let me ask you, I've told you the last several weeks, God's invitation is come. It's come. Come and have all of me that you want. Come and have all of me that you want. The question is, how much do you want? How much of God do you really want? Do you just want to be a little religious on Sunday to keep up appearances? Or I'll go to the other end of the spectrum. Do you want Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Let me just tell you, as you already know, the latter is true Christianity. The former is pseudo-Christianity. It's why we come here and gather in this redeemed garage to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. For He is worthy. He says, come. And we say, Amen. Lord Jesus, bid me come. Bid me come. Oscar Wilde didn't uncover two tragedies, really only one. What was the tragedy that Oscar Wilde uncovered? <laughs> it's what we want. That's the problem. Fallen man wants almost anything other than God. The one we were made for, we have rejected. We have rebelled against Him. Romans chapter 1, I know I go back there all the time, but it's the, the perfect description of fallen man. We are haters of God. 
We are running from God. We are arrogant before God. As Karen said to me the other day regarding some secular issue, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Beloved, we were made to tremble with joy before this awesome God. And in many pulpits around the world, He's presented as a frustrated, pathetic, impotent God who really can't get His, get his purposes accomplished. Anytime you hear that kind of talk about Jehovah, you need to run out the door. <laughs> That's not the God of the Bible. That is some false caricature of Jehovah God. So if we're seeking anything other than God preeminently, it's sin. Even if I'm seeking ministry above God, it's sin. If I put ministry above God, it's sin. If I put my wife above God, it's sin. It's sin, beloved. So I'm just going to stop and ask you, is God first for you? Is God first for you? This is the way it ought to be. This is the way God means for it to be. That you would love Him first and you would live like you love Him first. right? Because if you don't love Him first, you'll never live like you love Him first. It'll all be a game. It'll just be pretense. It'll just be performance. Beloved, we have, as I always tell you, we have, we have moments on this planet as compared to eternity. We just have moments. We're vapor upon the earth. And so I want to exhort you to lay hold. Lay hold and live your life huge. That's why we're in Hebrews 11. It's what they did. The men and women of Hebrews 11, they, lo they laid hold of the life that God had given to them. And they lived it huge. They never looked back. <laughs> they just obeyed the Lord with glad, reckless joy. You guys know the definition of sin. One of, the, one of my... One of the fav my favorite definitions of sin, listen to this. Sin is the suicidal exchange of the glory of God for the broken cisterns of created things. I'll read it to you again. Sin is the suicidal exchange of the glory of God for broken cisterns of created things. It is an insult for you to love the blessing more than you love the One who gave it. It's an insult to God. It's an insult to God, beloved. How could we ever, I understand the charismatics and the name it and claim it crowd go there. That's who they are. That's what they do. But how could we ever love the blessing? How could we ever pursue and desire the blessing more than the one who gives it? I love how C.S. Lewis talks about it. You've heard me quoting before. He says, Mankind is far too easily pleased. Do you know what he's saying when he says that? Mankind is far too easily pleased. He says we're playing with mud pies when God has offered us a holiday at the sea. We're, we're in the mud. We're playing in the mud. When God has offered us abundant life, are you far too easily pleased? Or are you like, the men and women of Hebrews 11. <laughs> Nothing will please you but God. Nothing will please you but God. 
You must have God. Whatever it looks like. Whatever it looks like, I must have more of God. Well, what God's calling me to do looks quite impossible. It doesn't matter. We've talked a lot about it. God knows what to do with the impossible. That's not the point. The point is, I must have God. Lord Jesus, if that's You in the water, bid me come. I'm out of the boat. If that's You, I'm out of the boat. And if You, if you command me to come, I'm out of the boat. Because I want You above all things. I want You above all things. Real faith. Biblical faith, saving faith, born-again faith, God-given faith. It's always in this pursuit. Real faith, born-again faith, God-given faith, saving faith never sits down. I'm not saying we don't have seasons maybe when we're dull and we're not where we need to be before the Lord. But true faith is always in the pursuit We're putting down the mud pies and we're moving on in our sanctification, in our holiness, and in our obedience. So the last two weeks we saw God define faith for us. Hebrews 11.1 Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. We summarize that and synthesize that by saying that God is the substance of things hoped for. God is the evidence of things not seen. Why do I say it that way? Faith is substance and evidence because God is the object of our faith. Again, we don't have faith in our faith. I know the name it and claim it's they have faith in their faith. But we don't have, uh, true Bible believers don't have faith in their faith. They have faith in God. They have faith in God. They look to God. So God is our substance, God is our evidence. He's all we need. We take Him at His word, right? We take Him at His word. If He said it, That's enough for us. It's enough for us. It's what you see in the lives of the men and women of Hebrews 11. It was enough. It was enough that God told Noah to build the ark. That's enough. He didn't get a big explanation. It was enough for Abraham when God said, hey, you know, leave your home. I'm not going to tell you exactly where you're going, but just head out. I'll take care of the details later. He does it. Right? It's what you see in Hebrews 11. Just simple, unvarnished, reflexive, glad, reckless obedience. It's, it's what you see. It's, it's, what God say, it's what God is saying. My people obey me like this. My people love me like this. <laughs> it's real faith. I don't care what the Pope says or the patriarch says or what your favorite preacher says. If it's different than Hebrews 11, it's wrong. It's just wrong. It's false. God says, this is my definition of faith. And you know that God has told us, Ephesians chapter 2, we are saved by faith. So shouldn't we have a deep understanding of what faith is? God has told us, Hebrews 11. And we talked a lot about it last week as we parked on verse 6. What are the two things we must believe? What are the two things we believe? Uh, what is biblical faith? What the kind of faith that pleases God? I guess is what I'm trying to say. What, are the, what were the two aspects we talked about last week? Anybody remember? That He is, and what? That He's good. And we made the point, you can believe that He is, and you'll never do anything but be a church member. You can believe that He is, that's enough reason to show up for church. But if you don't believe He's a rewarder, if you don't believe He's good, you're never going to engage in risky obedience. You're never going to do it. 
unless you're convinced that He's good. And I shared my testimony with you about that last week. If you believe He's good, you'll do Hebrews 11. If you don't believe He's good, you'll never do it. You'll never do it. It'll always be academic. It'll always be theoretical. It'll always be, Lord, I, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. You're not ready for what? You're not ready to believe God? <laughs> You're not ready to believe God and watch God show up and do something God-sized in your life? Beloved, I, I love you and what I'm saying to you is don't put God off. Don't put God off. Don't put God off. Lord Jesus, bid me come. That should be your prayer every day. Bid me come. And if you keep praying that, He's going to bring you to His perfect purpose in your life. He'll bring you to it. He'll bring you to it. <laughs> and it will fill your heart with joy as you move on in obedience to the Lord. So, the Hebrews 11 Christian, the true Christian, the born-again Christian, the Christian who's the recipient of God-given faith, we are no longer earthbound. Amen? We're not earthbound. What are we? Someone tell me. Oh, what was in the text? Someone tell me. What? We're heaven-bound. We don't belong here anymore. We know we're passing through. It's what you see of the, you know, of the men and women here in Hebrews 11. We see it quite strongly this evening in the text. So I'm going to make a few points in our, te in our text tonight. Three or four, as a matter of fact. And, I, and I, I do want to mention, I want to give credit to John Piper. I stole his outline on this one. And uh, just because his points were so good, I don't normally do that, but his points were just so excellent. I wanted to pass them on to you. Verse 7 through 12, By faith Noah, being warned by God about the things not yet seen in reverence, pre prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he commend, uh, condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Verse 11, By faith even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised, therefore also there was born of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. How does faith begin? You tell me from that text. How does faith begin? Pardon me? God. God? That's a good answer. I would add one thing to it. 
an excellent answer, Laney. Sorry. It's an excellent answer. How does faith begin? How did it begin with Noah? You, you guys are right. It's, it's obviously God initiates, right? It's what you see all the way through the Bible. You never see man initiate. Men don't initiate. If we've understood the Bible, we understand man never initiates. God always initiates. It was God who came to Adam and Eve. It wasn't Adam and Eve looking for God in Genesis 3, and it's never changed. So, God comes and God gives His Word, right? This is the genesis of faith. God and His Word. God warned Noah. God called Abraham. God promised Sarah. It's why we preach the Bible in here. You know, they tell me, church growth experts tell me, if I didn't preach the Bible so much, I'd have more people here. Right? If we just jazzed it up a little bit and had some more entertainment, maybe some lights, maybe we'd get Shaheen up here to do some stuff, we'd have more people. We'd have a bigger crowd. I've been told that my whole life. I was taught this in seminary. Of course, we studied this in seminary. The seminary I went to said, don't ever do this. You don't ever... As a pastor and as a church, you never dumb down the truth to, gr- to get a crowd. You don't ever do that. You preach the truth and God brings whomever He calls. And they come. The true believers come to the truth. They come to the truth. They want to hear the truth. And God comes to Noah and He warns Noah. That's all Noah needed was the Word of God. That's all Noah needed. And he was off, right? He was off. <laughs> How long did it take Noah to build the ark? Anybody know? A really long time. How much? 120 years? A long time, right? And most speculated it had never rained before. Noah just grabbed his hammer, man. He just went to work. This is real faith. Is God convicting you somewhere in your life? Do it. Whatever, don't put God off. Don't hold God at arm's length. If God's calling you to do a thing, do it. Whatever it is, do it. You win. If you do it, you win. You get more of God. You get more of God. So it's why we preach the Word of God in here. I want to see changed lives. That's... that's, as a pastor, and the only thing that changes lives is the Word of God. As it's taught by the power of the Spirit of God. That's the only thing that will change a human life. That's the only thing. It's why we build our worship around the Word of God. Faith comes by miracles, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Faith comes by naming it and claiming it, right? Is that what the Bible says? What does the Bible say? Someone tell me. I think we talked about this Thursday night at Bible Study Fellowship. Faith comes by the Word of God. Period! It doesn't come any other way. I don't care what the Pope says. I don't care. Especially as a Bible-believing Christian. Right? I want to know what God says. 
We're not interested in what men say because there's no power in what men say. Men may say some good things. They may say some really great things, some noteworthy things, some wonderful things, but there's no regeneration power in the words of men. There's regeneration power in the words of God. That's why we preach the Word here. God could not be more clear in Hebrews 11. Saving faith, biblical faith, born-again faith, It comes by His Word. And I know God is involved in your life or you wouldn't be sitting in here. (laughs) You wouldn't come here unless God had made an overture to you in your life. So let me stop and ask. Since God's made the overture, God is speaking His Word into your life. Will you be like Noah? Will you be like Abraham? Will you be like Sarah? Will you just obey? (laughs) Listen, I used to sit out there. And I used to sit out there sometimes and I would be afraid. And I was afraid right up until God convinced me that He was a good God and that He could be trusted. And when I finally was convinced that God was good and could be trusted and He was a promise keeper, when I finally got convinced of that, it was like my whole life changed. (laughs) I just wasn't afraid anymore. And beloved, I want to challenge you not to be afraid. It's the Word of God. We love it. We stand on it here. It made me think as I was contemplating these things. Matthew seven twenty four to 27 You remember when Jesus was saying, everyone who hears My words and what? Acts on them. Acts on them. Right? I'm getting jazzed up. Acts on them. They're like a wise man who's building on a rock. Are you, listen, beloved, are you standing on a rock or are you still standing in the sand? You know, you can obey the Lord. His word is a rock. His word is a rock. The second truth I want to bring home to you is that in true faith, there's always an inner response. What is Noah's response here? Did you notice in Noah, it says, in reverence, he prepared an ark. In reverence, he prepared an ark. He didn't ask a lot of questions. He just obeyed the Lord in reverence. What does it mean to have reverence? It means, it means awe. It means worship. It means veneration. It means astonishment. It means amazement. I may not, Noah did not fully understand why he was building an ark and what all this was about, but for 123 years, he got up and grabbed his hammer and built it. That's what God expects you to do too, beloved. Every day, get up, grab your hammer, and do your metaphorical hammer, and do whatever He's called you to do for the glory of Jesus. If you're a fashion designer, you design for the glory of Jesus, right? If you're a neurologist, you do the brain thing for the glory of Jesus, right? And you're making much of Jesus in it, right? You're bringing glory and honor to Him as you work for His glory. And you share the truth of who He is. As I always say to you, nobody in your orbit is confused about who you love preeminently. They all know who you love preeminently. They know you love Jesus Christ above everything else. They know it. It's in your life. It's in your words. It's in your deeds. So, there's an inner response. Noah, he builds that ark 
we don't have an explicit response stated here about Abraham, but we can see, it's as if we can see in his heart, he leaves and he goes to a place not knowing, verse 8, where he was going. We know there's an inner response. This is radical trust. Amen? Nobody does this. <laughs> Nobody does this kind of thing unless they trust the Lord. I love what Piper said about this, about Abraham here. He said, he not only, he not only goes not knowing where he's going, he doesn't know how it's going to go. He not only doesn't know where he's going, he doesn't know how it's going to go. He just knows God's enough. However it goes, right? However it goes, God's enough. God's enough for me. However it goes. Uh, is that how it is with you and Jesus? Daniel was delivered. Stephen was stoned. The name it and claimants will tell you, if you obey the Lord and you have enough faith, it will always go perfect. In a temporal sense, that's not true. Stephen was stoned. Obeying the Lord. Had Jesus forsaken Stephen? No, we, we, we know from the accounts Jesus was with Stephen. Stephen looked into the heavens and he saw Jesus standing at the right end of God. Jesus was with him in a most personal way. Beloved, my point is this. We're not supposed to be overly concerned about Temporal consequence, only eternal consequence. If we're going to be a Hebrews 11 Christian, right? If we're going to trust the Lord and obey Him and go with Him. I love this about Abraham. He didn't need all the details. There are countless unknowns here. All he knows is that God is trustworthy and he banks his whole life on it. He banks his whole life on the character of God. This is what I'm trying to tell you from last week. Do you actually believe he's good? Do you actually believe he is a rewarder? Beloved, what I, what I hope I'm trying to communicate to you is that you would not waste your life being merely religious. I wasted a large part of my life being merely religious. And there's a huge difference, I can tell you. Give yourself away. Give yourself away. And live. It's what the Bible's about. <laughs> live. He's calling us to the abundant life, which is always out of the boat, out on the water with Him. The third truth I want to mention here is that there's, with this internal rev revolution, if the internal revolution has happened, there'll be an external revolution, meaning if your heart has been changed, your life will be changed. And it's what we see, again, here in the text. How do we know? How do we know Noah had faith? How do we know? 
There's a 450 by 75 by 40 foot ark in his backyard. How do we know Abraham had faith? He packed his suitcase and he left. How do we know Sarah had faith? This old barren woman got pregnant. If faith is real, it will be evident in your life. Your life takes on a dimension that only can be explained by God. It can only be explained by the assurance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Only God makes sense of an ark on dry land. Etc., etc., etc. I've been quoting Francis Chan a lot, but it keeps coming back to me, and I, I can't help it, so <clears throat> yeah, I'm going to keep saying it to you. Something's wrong, Francis Chan says, when your life makes sense to unbelievers. And as I amplified on that last week, everything's wrong when your life makes sense to unbelievers. Hebrews 11 is a clear testimony. An unbeliever could never understand this chapter. They have no clue what Abraham's doing, what Noah's doing, what Sarah's doing, what Samuel's doing, what David's doing, what Gideon's doing. They have no clue. They don't get it at all. So, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, their lives did not make sense to unbelievers. And to one degree or another, beloved, let me just say it to you, neither should yours or mine. You know, you should, the unbelievers in your life, they should be scratching their head, saying, well, what's that about? Why do you do that? They're supposed to be asking you. It's your, it's your opportunity to evangelize. Why do you live this way? Why do you talk this way? Why do you refuse to do this? Why do you not endorse the cultural norms? Why is this true in your life? People should be asking you this question. They should be asking you, what is the hope that is within you that makes you live like an alien and an exile? What is it? People should be asking you this question. And then it just becomes simple evangelism as you share the truth of Jesus with them. The fourth thing I want to mention here tonight is biblical faith. If it's real, uh, we understand the lion's share, we talked about last night in the marriage class, the lion's share of reward is there. It's not here. You know, the name it and claim it's they try to pull all the reward from heaven. They try to pull it into this life. Beloved, you simply can't do that with any biblical in integrity. We understand that there. There's some reward here, but not all. Not all reward is here, obviously. Christians are the happiest people on the planet. They're the happiest people I've ever met. They're walking with Jesus. And on our worst day, our hardest day, our saddest day, our God is with us. And He's even working our tears for our good. My point is this, that all the happiness that God brings us temporally, it's only the tiniest portion of our reward that will come to us in the next life. God says, build an ark. Noah says, where's my hammer? God says, Abraham, I need you to head out to a place you don't know anything about. Abraham says, where's my suitcase? And Abraham traveled 600 miles, 1,000 kilometers. In, this, in that day and age, that was a treacherous and dangerous thing to do. 
And he never owned any of the promised land, did he? Except for one small part. He owned the burial plot of Sarah. God said to Sarah, you will have a son. And she gets the nursery ready. So, if the revolution has happened in here, it's going to be spilling out into our lives. This is what true faith looks like. And the, the fourth thing I want to say to you here is, if you look here at the last few verses that, that, we, had, that we read earlier, verses 13, 14, 15, and 16, you see, and even in verse 10, you see this clear... What are these people looking at? You just tell me from the text. What are these men and women looking at? When you look at those verses that I mentioned, verse 10, verse 13... Verse 16, verse 14, what are they looking at? They're looking at heaven. They're looking at heaven. Heaven is supposed to inform every day you get up. It's supposed to inform every single day you get up. You're supposed to smell like God and you're supposed to smell like you're on your way to heaven. And people should be getting that off your life. They should be sensing that from your life. Uh, one old Puritan said this, no man may go to heaven who has not sent his heart on before. Don't you love that? No man may go to heaven who has not sent his heart on before. So let me ask you, is your heart there or is it here? It's an important question, beloved. It's an important question for us. So we are aliens. We are exiles. This is a common theme in the Bible. Abraham called himself a stranger and a sojourner. David called himself a transient, a mere breath upon the earth. Paul said that believers, that our citizenship is in heaven, present tense, is in heaven. And Peter called all believers aliens and strangers upon the earth. Real Christians don't aim at the things of the world. We aim at God. And we aim at heaven. We are the consummate hedonists. It's what we were talking about. Christian hedonism. Someone tell me what Christian hedonism is. We've talked about this some. What is it? What is Christian hedonism? Find your pleasure in God. God is our, consum- God is our pleasure. God is our consummate pleasure. It's, it's a perfect term. Christian hedonism. We are the consummate hedonists. Because... We are pursuing the highest pleasure in the cosmos, which is God Himself. So, beloved, have you been saying no to God? Have you been compromising? Have you been afraid to step out in faith? I want to challenge you this evening to say yes to God. You know, Noah and Abraham and Sarah, they're no different than you or, you or I. They're, they're, they're flesh and blood just like you or I. They, uh, they had jobs. They had families. They struggled with the same things that you and I struggle with. They had to fight through unbelief, doubt, hesitation, fear, and anxiety, just like you and I. I think sometimes we don't put ourselves in these men and women's shoes. They had all, we had, they had all the same feelings that you and I have. And they believed. And they went with God. They really believed that God is and that God is good. So the the challenge tonight is that you and I would believe these things about God and that we would live with the long view. We would take the long view. We are not preoccupied and distracted 
by the things of the world. Our eyes are fixed on the beauty of Christ and the Bema seat where we will meet Him soon. We're focused on the Bema seat. So I, I want to encourage you tonight to say yes to God like you've never said yes before. I want you to take your faith. I want you to take it out in the real world. And I want you to wield it. I want you to wield it in the world. That unbelievers around you will see it and they will, they will recognize that something is different about you. And they'll come to you and ask you about it. They'll have to ask you about it. You are so strange. You are so peculiar, right? You are so alien. You are so different. That you won't have to be looking for chances to evangelize. They'll be coming to you and asking you about it, <laughs> right? Uh, it's one good way to do evangelism. So I'm going to dare you. I dare you. I dare you to be a Hebrews 11 Christian. I, I dare you to be like Noah and Abraham and Sarah. I dare you to just obey God with glad, reckless joy. I dare you to do it. I dare you to do it. You'll never be sorry. You'll never ever be sorry when we see each other on this other side. We'll sit and we'll talk about it for hours. Obeying God with glad, reckless joy. Oh, Jim, you remember that time? Let me tell you. Oh, let me tell you what God did then. I just believed Him a little bit and I just obeyed Him a little bit and bam! He turned the world upside down in my life. Let's talk about it. We'll sit for hours and muse at all the awesome things God did through faith. He gets the glory. We get the joy. Amen. Beloved, you need to be thinking about heaven. You need to be thinking about heaven every day. You need to be pointing at heaven just like these men and women were. It's one reason they lived like they lived. They were not deceived by the world. They were not deceived by the adversary. They didn't get caught up in the culture. They were looking at God. They were loving God. And you notice what a perfect way to close. <laughs> verse, is it verse 16? Men and women who live like this. God says, I'm not ashamed to be their God. Isn't that an awesome thing? I am not ashamed to be their God. They believed that I'm God and they believe that I'm good. And you can see it in their lives. They smell like me in the world. Right? God says, I'm not ashamed to be their God. So I dare you tonight, beloved. Wherever God is challenging you in obedience, do it. Do it immediately. Do it. Lay hold. Lay hold of faith and live at large. We are all passing through. We are all vapors upon the earth. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we praise You. We thank You for this Word. Father, Your Word tells us 
that if we shrink back, you have you take no pleasure in us. But as the writer of Hebrews says, we are not of those who shrink back. We believe that you are God. And we believe that you are good. And we believe we are here for these few moments to make much of Jesus. So Lord, help us not to become confused. Help us not to become distracted. It is all about Christ. Every day is all about Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Oh God, grant us that mindset and that perspective. Lord, we, we're so easily distracted. So easily. You know our frame. So help us, Lord, we pray. Holy Spirit, encourage us, embolden us. Enlighten us. Help us be good stewards. Help us be good stewards of these days that You have given to us. Each day is a gift, O God, and we thank You for it. Help us put it to good use. Eternal use. Help us to do business, kingdom business, with every day that You give us. Thank You, Father. Thank You for this high call. Thank You for this beautiful life You've called us to. We give all glory and honor to the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, I think we could sing, 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 don't you think, Joe? Could we sing that? With the guitar? Sing, sing, sing? Yeah, let's try it. You want to try it? Let's, I can't, it's hard to leave without singing to me anyway. It's hard, and, and we're going to give this a shot. So we're going to try to, we're going to, try to sing, 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 sing. Thank you.